0: Or through our online campus. If this message blesses you and you'd like to support the ministry financially, again, you can go to eclive.org and click on the Giving tab and choose Online Campus as your campus. Thanks again for joining us today, and we hope this message will be an encouragement to you on your spiritual journey. Well, Emmanuel Church, what is going on? My name is Cody Johnson. I am the Emmanuel Greenwood campus pastor and I am so excited to be with you. We know that there's a lot of stuff going on, but we are having church today. We are excited. We hope that you are excited as well to be with you online. It is such an honor, it is such a privilege. We're gonna have some fun today. Thank you so much for being with us. If you have not been with us for the past few weeks, we are in the middle of a series called In My Feelings and I'm gonna be talking to you about week three in this week's content. But over the course of the past couple weeks, we've been talking About this central idea that if we don't control your feelings, or if you and I don't control our feelings, your feelings will control you. And oftentimes, these feelings will get control of us, and they will lead us down a path that we did not want to go. So we have got to learn to control these feelings. And when we were thinking up the content for this series a while back, we wanted to to talk about some strategies and some ways that we can empower people to get control of these feelings. And a couple weeks ago, we talked all about being skeptical. And last week, we talked about this idea, Pastor. Danny did an amazing job of delivering a talk all about creating space. And based on what's going on in the news right now, I know for a fact that you've been creating space. So I know what Pastor Danny would do. He'd be like, did you do it? Did you do it this week? Did you guys do a good job? And he would clap and he would do this. So you guys have done that. We are so happy and so excited. But for real, last week we talked about three ways in which you can create space and why it's so beneficial. We create space to think. We create space to recover. And we create space to hear God speak. And what it looks like to create that space around us so we can hear that that gentle whisper the pastor Danny talked about that was my favorite part of last week I loved it when he did that it was great we also talked about the prayer of examine so if you have not had a chance to engage in that prayer it's by Saint Ignatius who pastor Danny lovingly called some old dead guy if you have not had a chance to engage in that prayer it's going to be on social media every platform that we have we've posted it you can go to our YouTube page you can go to our website check out the talk and the prayer of examine is going to be on our site but now for week three I'm going to talk to you about something a little bit different I'm gonna to talk to you about losing control. And if you're following along in our app, that's gonna be your first fill. And We're gonna talk about losing control, which is kind of weird and it's kind of different. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense right now because the entire crux of the talk and what we've been discussing over the past few weeks has been this big idea of controlling your feelings or your feelings will control you. So why are we talking about losing control? We'll get to that in a minute. Just stick with me, roll with me and we'll talk about it in a moment. But if we're being honest with ourselves and we're talking about the way things look in our own life, I think we can honestly take a good look at how we control our feelings. And we could say that we don't really do a good job of controlling our feelings. In fact, I'd say we do a pretty lousy job of controlling our feelings because we don't realize what's at stake. And when I was thinking about how I could talk about this, I was thinking about the idea that I could talk about, you know, generally speaking, how this could play out at your job, how this could play out with your family, how this could play out with your kids when you lose control and you engage in in anger and then that becomes the dominating emotion. You could talk about that with your relationships. You could talk about that with money, with your body, all sorts of different things. You could talk about it with famous celebrities who have succumbed to being controlled by their feelings. People like Bernie Madoff, who couldn't get control of his greed and it ended up him making so many terrible, terrible decisions. He got thrown in prison. He lost his job, his professional reputation, all these bad things because he couldn't get in control of his feelings. You Talk about somebody like Tiger Woods, who was so overcome with the feelings of lust that it caused him to wreck his marriage He lost endorsement deals, he lost money, he lost popularity, all these different things. Think about somebody like Demi Lovato, whose battle was with substance abuse because she couldn't get control of her feelings around substance abuse. She had to go to rehab and she's doing better now. We're so excited for her. And you could talk about all those people and and it would make sense and it, it it would be fine. But I wanted to use an illustration. I wanted to use an example that was a little bit more personal to me. I wanted to introduce you to a good friend of mine, especially when I was younger. His name is Chris Farley. Now, for those of you that are unaware, you didn't grow up in the 90s, you may not know about this guy, but me being a chunky kid who grew up in the 90s in the Midwest, this guy was my hero. He was my guy because when you're a heavyset dude growing up in the Midwest in the 90s, you need hope. You need to know that even if I am a little bit bigger than the dudes around me, that if I have humor, if I can make people laugh, there is hope for me. And he was that source of hope and he was that source of encouragement. See, the thing about Chris Farley was he was larger than life. He was a big dude, yes, but he had this huge, magnanimous personality. He was so outgoing. He was so funny. He was in these legendary sketches on Saturday Night Live. He did this shirtless dance-off with Patrick Swayze. If you have never seen it, you've got to go to YouTube and check it out. It is so painfully funny. He was a Chicago Bears fan. He was a motivational speaker named Matt Foley. His most famous movie, Tommy Boy, was released in 1995, took the world by storm. He's sort of like Kevin heart is now. He was all over the place. He was everywhere. He was all anybody ever talked about. Lorne Michaels, the head of Saturday Night Live, called him one of the most infuriatingly talented comedians that he had ever seen in his life. And that story about Chris is is about half true. That's what the world saw. But they didn't see what was going on inside of his heart and inside of him as he was battling with control of his own feelings. See, the thing about Chris Farley was that he was one of five children, so he was always battling with these feelings of insecurity. He didn't let a lot of people know that, but that manifested itself throughout his adulthood as well. And as he became more and more successful, and as he did more and more things through Saturday Night Live and the success of his global hits like Tommy Boy and Black Sheep, he was always battling with depression. He was always battling with insecurity and anxiety, always wondering when the other shoe was gonna fall, when the success was gonna stop. Am I ever going to be able to recreate the success I had with this movie? And ultimately, this would take the, the ultimate toll on his life because on December 17th, 1998, at 33 years old, one year older than I am today, my hero ended up overdosing and it cost him his life. He overdosed on drugs. He overdosed on alcohol and he died. And so the thing about Chris Farley, the tragic thing about him is that not only did it affect him and his immediate family, it affected his best friends. David Spade was his, one of his closest friends. They had starred in so many sketches and movies together. And David Spade says 22 years after he passed away, he still thinks about it every single day. And I know the impact that it had on the 10-year-old in the black Mitsubishi Eclipse who was driving around the Greenwood Park Mall with his mom when he heard it on the radio. Because that kid was me. And it absolutely crushed me. And every, ever since then, every single time I see a picture like this, or every single time I think about Chris Farley, I always wonder what might have been. What might have been... Had he been able to live past 33 years of age and keep giving people the gift of his comedy and the gift of his love, but we'll never know that because he was not able to get control of his feelings. That is what's at stake. When you think about what it can cost you, yes, if you don't get control of your feelings, they can control you, that is true. But if you don't get control of your feelings, it can cost you everything. And that's why we're doing this series and that's why we're doing this talk because it is of the utmost importance. And as you think about this internal battle that you have with your feelings, because it is that, it is a battle and that's how we have to think about it. We're gonna to go to your next feeling right now. The way that you have to approach it is that you have to treat this like a fight. And you are going to have to fight against your destructive feelings if you are going to have any sort of success in getting control over them. And as I was thinking about the way to present this fight and the way that we could think about it and the way to, to make it stick, I was thinking about how we could explain it so it resonates with you. And so I wanted to tell you a story. Well, I'm not gonna tell you a story about some abstract character. I'm not gonna tell you a story about somebody you don't know. I'm gonna tell you a story about somebody that's very personal to you. You are the center of the story. You are going to be the hero of sorts on this journey. And you're gonna go on your own little journey over in order to overcome these feelings and fight them and control them. You're gonna go on your sort of own hero journey. And I'm gonna be right there along with you. Now, we're not gonna go over the 12 steps of the hero's journey, we're not gonna do that today, but there's three crucial elements that I wanna talk about because every hero has to come to grips with themselves, and they have to get that, that bold sense of confidence, they have to realize something about themselves. Every, every hero has to assemble their team and ultimately every hero has to fight the bad guy or the bad girl in the end. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit. But the first thing that we have to do on this hero's journey is that we have to fight for a new narrative. We have to fight for a new narrative. Dallas Willard had such command and he had such a deep understanding of the current narrative, the lie that we tell ourselves currently. This is what Dallas said. Those who continue to be mastered by their feelings. Another way to say master is to be controlled. Those who continue to be controlled by their feelings are typically persons who in their heart of hearts believe that their feelings must be satisfied. That is the current lie that we believe. We believe that every time I'm tempted with a feeling, every time I'm tempted with an emotion, I have to engage with it. I have to satisfy that feeling. I have to indulge in that feeling when it pops up. But it's just not true. We don't have to do that. And that a lot of times is the the governing aspect that's causing us to be ruled by our feelings and cause us to make these choices that lead us down these paths where we would rather not go. Here is the new narrative that you and I have to get so comfortable with on this hero's journey that we're on. The new narrative is that I cannot control my circumstances, but I can control my narrative. It is a fact that you are going to be tempted by your feelings. You're going to be tempted by your circumstances. There is nothing that you can do about that. Even if you're on this journey to lose weight, for example, and you go through your house and you say, you know what, I'm gonna get every bit of junk food out of my cupboard, out of my pantry, out of my refrigerator. I am gonna dump it in the trash. I'm gonna take it out to the road and I am never gonna have it in this house again. This house is gonna be clean. All I'm gonna eat is kale and sweet potato chips. I'm gonna weigh like hundred pounds. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose so much weight, it's gonna be great. You can do that. But as soon as you step out your door and you decide to go out to eat, you're gonna smell certain things. Those old familiar feelings are gonna come back. You're gonna to go to the office. You're gonna see the donuts on the counter and you're gonna to start to salivate because you and I are going to be tempted. Jesus Christ was tempted. But the difference was is that Jesus did not feed into those temptations. He did not allow those temptations to lead him to sin. And that is the new narrative that you and I have to start telling ourselves. In Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, we see how Jesus was tempted. We go to verse 1, in Matthew 4, verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. So think about that for a second. Not only was Jesus tempted, he's hungry, he's alone, he's isolated, he's in a fasted state. And he's being tempted by the greatest tempter that ever tempted in the course of temptation's existence. He's being tempted by the devil. And the devil tempts him in three ways, in ways that we all are tempted by each and every single day. The first way he tempts him is Jesus is sitting there, and there are these stones surrounding him. The devil walks up to him, and he says, you know what? And this is a paraphrase. This is not exactly how it went down. But but the devil says, you know what? Jesus, the Son of God, if that's in fact who you are, why don't you just turn these stones into loaves of bread? I, I know you're hungry. You could eat. Why don't you do that? So Jesus identifies this temptation. He sees it, he identifies it, he resists it. And then this next crucial step is something that Dallas Willard would say is essential in overcoming this current narrative that we're battling. See, it's not enough to identify and resist the temptation. You have to present it before God and then you have to replace it with something else in order to get control over it. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So Jesus says, no, 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 no. I do not live by bread alone, but I live by the word of God. So he identifies the temptation, he resists it, he presents it before God, and then he replaces it with the word of God. The second temptation, the devil takes them to the top of this temple nearby and they're standing there and the devil says, you know, Jesus, why don't you, if you're the son of God, why don't you just jump off? Because as it says in scripture, the angels will come, they'll protect you, they'll save you, you probably won't even jack up your foot. And Jesus says, no, 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 I I know what you're trying to get me to do he identifies the temptation, he resists it, he presents it before God, and he says, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. So instead of engaging in the temptation of doubt, he's engaging in the faith that God is good and he doesn't need him to prove a miracle to know that he is good in that moment. And then in the third and final temptation in this example, the devil takes him to the highest mountaintop. Has him survey everything before him. Look over everything that he sees. And the devil says, I will give you control over all of it. If you bend the knee, if you bow to me, and if you worship me. And Jesus says, no. I identify, I resist, I place it before God. And I am replacing it and I will say, I will never worship you. And I will serve only the one true God. He resists him a third time. And then in verse 11, it says the devil went away and the angels came and they served him. To say it another way, in the book of James, it says if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. That is what can happen when you fight for a new narrative. When you fight so hard for this narrative to believe that you can resist this this temptation, I don't have to engage in every single feeling that comes up and I can fight these destructive feelings. When you believe that, when you place it before God and you carry yourself out the same way that Jesus did through daily life, then you can win this daily battle with these feelings. You can fight for this new narrative and you can win. Now, that's just the first example of today's hero's journey. That is the first part of it. So now we've got that emboldened sense of confidence. I feel kind of like we're, like we're Neo in the matrix where Morpheus is watching the screen. Neo's starting to believe in himself and Morpheus says he's beginning to believe. Like that's where we're at right now. So we're beginning to believe in this moment, which is a good thing. But now we've got to advance to the second part. So what's the second part of this journey? We've got to build the crew. We've got to build the team. And as a general rule of thumb on this hero's journey, I would say for this second point in the notes, you never fight alone. And if you think about all these different heroes journeys and all these adventures and all these big epic moments, rarely does the hero fight alone. I've got a few examples, some really awesome teams and ways that people fought alone. So here's the first example from the movie Braveheart. Look at these dudes, they just picked up sticks from the yard, like they're ready to go. Actually, these are not sticks from the yard. These are giant spears because the enemy forces are sprinting towards them on horseback. So this is how they're defending themselves. But you see these guys, like they're jacked up, they're screaming, they got these big spears, they're ready to fight, they're yelling, they're encouraging, they're, they're fighting for each other. They're a group, they're a team, they're a unit. And they're a unit throughout the entire film, if you've ever seen Braveheart. Let's go to the second example. This example is a little bit different. These are the Golden Girls. Now the Golden Girls are a little bit different team. And if you've ever seen this show, you're probably already hearing the song in your head. And I thank you for being a friend. Like you hear the piano, like I know that you're seeing it, you're probably singing it right now. That's good, it's a good show. This team is all about calling you out when you make mistakes and when you start acting like a fool. Why are you dating that guy? You know he's not any good for you. Why are you texting that girl? You know she's not any good for you. This type of team is never gonna let you do anything dumb. They're gonna call you out and you need people like that in your life. So then we go to the third team. This third team is a group of ladies called the Night Witches and you probably don't know about them. And it is my honor to tell you everything that you need to know because these ladies, they were a fighting Soviet force during World War II. They were a group of pilots. And this fearsome group of of ladies, it might not look like it right now, but this fearsome group of ladies was responsible for dropping 23,000 tons of of munitions on Nazi forces. How crazy is that? They are a team. Even in the midst of battling one of the most demonic forces throughout human history, they're smiling, they're upbeat because they are a unit. They were called the Night Witches because they flew in planes made of wood and the Nazis couldn't pick them up on the radar. And when they would fly overhead, the Nazis used to say it sounded like somebody was sweeping with a broom on some type of porch and just made this whoosh whoosh noise. So that's why they were called the Night Witches. This is one of my favorite examples of fighting together as a team. You have to have a team like this in place. If you were going on your hero's journey, if you are fighting these destructive feelings, you have to have a team. Talks about this in Romans. In Romans, it says, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. We all belong to one another. A team is so essential in this fight against our destructive feelings as we try to control our feelings for accountability, for encouragement, for community, for follow through all these different things. Every single one of us has been given a spiritual gift. If you think about the impact team, we couldn't do this service, this online service right now. We couldn't do it without the impact team. It is a collection, a team of people who take their spiritual gifts and we fight together in order to make this happen, in order to fight the forces of evil with our mission to see people come to Christ and grow in Christ. That's what the impact team is all about. You think about the hallmarks of a good small group that fights together. They're constantly fighting these destructive feelings throughout their personal lives. And all the key elements of a good small group, each person has their role. You've got somebody that can cook, somebody that's really good at organizing, somebody that's really good at leading with discussion questions, somebody that can come up with community service and outreach projects, all these different things. Each team, each team member has a role and a part to play in this fight against destructive feelings. General Stanley McChrystal, would say that it takes a network to defeat a network. You need a solid network of people to deal with a network of feelings and emotions because rarely is it just one destructive feeling that you are doing battle with on this journey. A lot of the time it looks like you're dealing with a lot of different feelings at the same time. It could be anger, it could be lust, it could be greed, it could be a thirst for money, it could be anything and everything. And I know the value of a good team because this is something that's played out throughout the course of my life over the past year. Some of you may not know this, but last year, right around this time, I gave my first talk here at Emmanuel and I cannot believe that it's already been a year. It blows my mind when I think about it. But about a year ago, my mom passed away. And this week is actually the one year anniversary of my mom's passing. And if I'm being completely honest with you, this past year has not been without its difficulties. There have been some really, really good days. My youngest daughter was born. We had some, some highlights along the way, which is lovely and amazing. But there have also been some really tough days and some really hard times attributed to a lot of the feelings that you feel when you're battling with grief, which is a, a continuous battle for me and for many of you, if you've lost anyone in your life recently or in the past. And the thing about this is I have a phenomenal team. I have friends, I have family, I have coworkers, I have colleagues, but the amazing thing about this team is that there have been people who have just randomly popped up who have joined the team that I never anticipated. Just three weeks ago, a woman found